Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the New Work and Intellectual History series of the St. Andrews Institute of Intellectual History. I am Lina Weber, and it is with great pleasure that I am talking to Ryan Walter and Keith Tribe today about their new books. Ryan is Associate Professor at the University of Queensland. His research interests lie in the fields of political economy and political theory. Ryan's new book, Before Method and Models, The Political Economy of Malthus and Ricardo, has just been published with Oxford University Press in their Distinguished Oxford Studies in the History of Economics series. Keith is an economic historian and academic translator. He taught at, at the University of Kiel and is currently a senior research fellow at the University of Tartu. He has published widely on the relationship between language, history, and economics, and has translated the work of Max Weber. Keith's new book, Constructing Economic Science, The Invention of a Discipline, 1850 to 1950, is published with Oxford University Press, also in their Oxford Studies of the History of Economics series. The ebook is already available and the book version will be out shortly. Ryan, um, would you like to start and tell us a bit about your book? So what was its starting point and how is it structured? Well, the starting point was to take seriously the problem of vocabulary substitution, um, as explained to us by, by Keith's work, especially in the economy of the word, but also as it's been put with particular force by Conal Condren. Um, the essential claim you know, is one familiar to intellectual historians, that when we fail to distinguish between the vocabulary that the historian uses in the present and the vocabulary in the texts, under study, then we compromise historical understanding. And it's especially a problem for those of us who study texts that are composed of language because we then have to convey our results to the reader with language. So we have a version of what economists call the endogeneity problem. And the solution or the way to stabilize that is to be scrupulous with respect to one's vocabulary that one, with which one thinks in the present and obviously the defining characteristic of an economist is proficiency with, with an economist's vocabulary and the vocabulary of the texts um, under study. And so when, when I took that um, starting precept to the classical political economists, so-called, I found that, that, as I think anyone who knows history of economic thought as a field would, would say, that we don't find that meticulous discipline at work. And in particular, what we find is a willingness to describe those texts in terms of their methods and models as though these people had methods that is a general epistemological principle such as induction or deduction obviously Ricardo typically thought of as a deductive thinker um, Malthus the, the inductive rival and we're also prepared to think of them as belonging to this unity of thought called classical political economy so the problems with not being careful about our vocabulary become pretty enormous pretty quickly. In the case of classical political economy, when we use that category, we're basically continuing Karl Marx's PR campaign for his own work, because he positioned himself as the, as the head of that tradition by selecting those thinkers um, with, with whom he, was, he understood himself to be in dialogue. In the case of, of method, and especially the idea of induction as opposed to deduction, that opposition was formalised after Ricardo's death by certain of his intellectual enemies in order to attack and discredit his work. So when we use those labels, we're 
also taking up a partisan position in a debate from the past, which obviously won't do for, for historians. So that meant then the task was to, to come up with a historical account of the vocabulary of this period. And then that would make it possible to ask the question, did these political economists have a specialized vocabulary such that we could think of them as, as possessing some sort of autonomous vocation or intellectual identity as political economists? And so of course the answer is, is no, they, they didn't use those words. And when those few occasions when they did, they didn't use them in our senses. What they did have was a cluster of terms linked to this very highly energized topos um, over the debate between theory and practice. Obviously Edmund Burke's the most, only the most famous person um, to, to, to agitate on the correct way to reason about politics. Obviously for Burke, it's practice and tradition and experience and to portray theorists effectively as enthusiasts, thereby activating some old and painful memories in England's political past from the previous century. And so this then gave, gave me a different way of talking about Malthus and Ricardo in, in a sense that a lot of Ricardo's contemporaries were terrified that he was an enthusiast, that the way that he governed his mind and produced claims in political economy was, was dangerous because he'd been seduced by system or a love of theory or enchanted by abstract ideas, that he didn't discipline himself in the necessary way to cleave to practice and to look to experience, to test his claims, to think about the effects of applying his principles. Um, and so, so one of the conclusions then was that there is no political economist or economist in this period as a standalone identity. Really, the people such as Malthus and Ricardo are parasitic on the figure of the theorist, and that's how they tend to describe themselves. And in this period, you can find occasional accounts of the political theorist, for example, from Dougald Stewart, but really that's a minority pursuit. Most people understood themselves as producing political counsel and most of the literature of the period is directed at parliament. So because we today are enamored by theory and economics today floats on the tide of theory, we've really forgotten that and, and, and misread the period. And so with those kind of steps set down, I then try to, to reread the bullying controversy, the Corn Laws debate, and then the big contest between Malthus and Ricardo in their, in their rival principles books. Um, so, so that's how the books, in a sense, set up a, a new vocabulary, then the political controversies, and then the big doctrinal contest, um, which you know, is, is the kind of bigger part of the book and, and most likely to put, put readers to sleep. And you, where would you say, with these big, big controversies that you now mentioned, the bullion controversy, the corn laws, and the doctrinal contest, so where what were your findings and how do they change the established view of these debates? Well, if we take the bullion controversy, that's normally seen as a moment where macroeconomic theory, especially monetary theory, comes into being. And it's, it's said that we're here we find different thinkers trying to work out the correct way to understand the relationship between the money supply and output. And so if you increase the money supply, does it flow through to prices? Um, is that a lasting change? So obviously that's the debate being read back through the categories of 20th century economics and 21st century economics. The, the alternative account that, that I try to sketch is one where what we have is actually a debate over a Whig political institution, the Bank of England. 
that was had come to be seen as essential to the survival of the British state and its ability to, to have victories over France. Obviously, Brewer's um, study of the fiscal military state is the, is the kind of classic text there. And, and so that meant that the defenders of the bank could appeal to the power of tradition and practice and experience when defending it, and the attackers would have to take up theoretical positions. That's what you'd expect. But in 1797, we had an innovation from government, which was to suspend convertibility of the bank's paper to specie. And so that rhetorically created this huge opening for the theorists to portray themselves as the friends of practice and experience and the government and the bank as the dangerous innovators. And so that's a, a kind of new, um, a new account of, of, of that famous um, controversy of the period. For the Corn Laws, that's normally studied as the time or the moment when we start to see these breakthrough concepts of comparative advantage and diminishing returns being established. Um, that, that I think is also a misreading of these debates from the perspective of the present. The, the, the alternative reading that, that I try to ground um, with, with evidence from the parliamentary debate is that this is really a late appearance of casuistical reasoning that is reasoning by cases where it's accepted that general principles will clash and that they'll need to be adjusted for the circumstances of the case. So in, in relation to the Corn Laws, it was accepted quite widely by people on both sides of the debate that if you wanted your state to advance in wealth, then a policy of free trade was the optimal path to take. But it was also accepted that there were higher ends of statecraft and wealth, security above all, but also for some thinkers, justice. And obviously Adam Smith's arguments to wealth of nations were, were used to mediate this debate. And so you find Malthus and Torrens and Parnell and to a degree Ricardo making cases for whether or not you need to make an exception to the principle of free trade because higher issues were, were, were at stake. So we don't have people making abstract theoretical models because that's just not a prestigious thing to do in a context where what you're meant to be doing is counselling parliament on how to solve a very practical and messy policy problem. Fascinating. Um, and you know, you mentioned Smith um, and I think you trace in your book, you trace the debate of the theory back to the British debate about the French Revolution. Um, do you consider the 1790s as a decisive break in thinking about historical thinking about politics and economic life? Or do you see, do you also see continuities between the Enlightenment and the debates that you are tracing? So is there still a role for Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations in the early 19th century? I think it's very much a story of continuity, um, but as usual, it's, it's messy. So the reception of Smith's Wealth of Nations by Malthus and Ricardo it is reasonably ugly and, and barbaric. Ricardo basically reads the first two books and ignores the rest. And the books that he read, it's not clear that he read them terribly carefully. He was essentially looking for passages that he could treat as anticipations of his own thought and, and then seeing fit to correct Smith uh, where he didn't agree with Ricardo, um, but give him generous marks when he did. And, and Malthus similarly uses Smith as a way of establishing a rival tradition to the Ricard, what he calls the Ricardian school and aligning him to his own thinking but obviously Malthus is operating 
basically in a, in a natural theology framework and, and organizing his work around the, the stock of food and the population, which is alien to Smith's Wealth of Nations. So again, you get another transposition of this text. Um, so not long after Smith's death, you basically have the text being, being picked over and dismantled for rhetorical purposes. Um, but, but that said, the, the 1790s, I don't, I don't see as a break period because these key combat terms are already in use and they're just being energised by, by people being terrified by the French again. Thank you. And I, I think I just want to ask you uh, one last question. Um, that's, I think, kind of a very practical one. So can you tell us a bit more about your, your methodological approach? Um, what I find very interesting, this formation of a persona and this idea of a standalone identity of something like an economist or a political theorist. So how do you, how, how do you reconstruct that? I suppose the key thing that I tried to do was to, to take a tip from, from J.J.A. Pocock when he says that we, we can have a notion of a first order and a second order vocabulary, which isn't a hard or logical distinction. It just tries to orient the historian to noticing which, you, which words people use when they want to call a bit of thinking good or bad thinking. And so in this period, if it were the case that we had economists who had their own methods distinct from other branches of political inquiry, then they should have their own vocabulary for saying this is a good bit of political economic thinking or this is a bad bit. But I didn't find that. I found that they had the same vocabulary that was in, in widespread use um, to process the French Revolution from the perspective of England and, and Britain and a country that, that had these um, traumatic memories of the 17th century and, and the, the, the enthusiasts or sectaries of, of, of those times. Um, so, so then in relation to the issue of a persona, is it, do the tools and vocabularies and, and rhetorical repertoires exist for forming oneself as a, as a different type of thinker too? For example, Dougald Stewart's political theorist or, or Edmund Burke's political calculator. And the answer is no, there's, there's just the same dispersed resources around political counsel, political speculation um, that, that we find other people using inside and outside parliament. So there's no real intellectual specialization of the type that, that Keith um, describes um, a century later. Great, I think you've also given uh, me the prompt to, for the transition. So uh, Keith, your book investigates the process by which public knowledge about political economy was institutionalized in Europe and America between the mid 19th and mid 20th century. Could you start by, by telling us about the framework of teaching political economy at academic institutions? Well, yes, I mean, the, the first thing I should say is that it's not that obvious, but the general plan or the general idea behind constructing economic science is continuous with my study from the 1980s of Kameralwissenschaft. Um, the point, point I... Uh, tends to get overlooked sometimes, but the point I was trying to make then was Kameralwissenschaft was, de was defined in terms of its institutional site. Um, so I defined what we would in, in English call Kameralism in terms of the institution. This didn't mean there were a lot, the, 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 the were, the, didn't mean there were no other kinds of writing. It's 
what I was studying was this particular kind of writing. And importantly, that means how the institution created the framework within which particular kinds of arguments would be formed and, and promoted, reproduced, or which would be ignored. And so constructing economic science uh, grows out of, at the same time I was working on uh, the institutionalization project with Isfan Hunt and others. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, I think to con uh, constructing economic science, is that in the course of that project, this big international project, uh, Europe, the United States and Japan, um, what uh, we'd started off with a very simple idea of when were the first chairs of, of economics, political economy, very simple idea. How does economics enter the university? Um, and basically what we realized was that actually it, it properly enters the university about the same, same time everywhere, that is in the late 19th century. Um, and so the change, we changed the, 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 the understanding of what was going on it was not how economics as a pre-existing discourse becomes taken up by university institutions but actually how, what is actually the new modern university, mainly an American formation of the late 19th century, how that shapes what economics becomes. So the Americans established um, on a misunderstanding really of the German model, um, but a productive misunderstanding, the modern university of faculties and, and departments with differentiated specializations and research, uh, research students as well earlier, and, and all kinds of, of issues like that. Um, and this became the model um, for what a university would become. But at the same time, uh, alongside that, um, there was uh, a, a drive for uh, the idea, or the, the, the idea became, particularly in, particularly in Britain. Um, in the late 19th century, we have a situation where Britain Britain's industrial development is um, perceived as being eclipsed by Germany and the United States. And there's a particular problem, especially in Britain, of education and training for commerce and so forth. And the arguments, there, there are arguments all over the world about commercial training and how to train people for commerce in the same way that in the early 18th century, there'd have been arguments about how you train people for public administration. Um, so this is now about commerce and how do you do it and whatever. And in Britain, um, the, the, there, were, there was very little, I mean, most training, commercial training, as with law, with medicine, accountancy, was all um, within uh, the actual professions themselves. Um, and engineering was the same. Um, so there were no, there were no formal modes of, of instruction for these kinds of things. And so... Um, in Britain, um, you, what was interesting was that we, we did have some arguments about this, no institutions, but then Marshall in 1885, when he was appointed, um, he became professor of political economy in Cambridge, inflected this idea, this international argument about commercial education into the idea that economics, his idea of what economics was, should be the means by which modern administrators, entrepreneurs, um, uh, managers, this is how, this is the knowledge which they needed. And so we needed to train 
and basically that was the the starting gun for then what became the the foundation of the tripos the first uh and international or first international uh foundation of a, a systematic three-year training in economics but everywhere else uh, in britain effectively um did start developing uh commercial education and importantly in 1895 the london school of economics and political science was founded and it is important to emphasize that economics and political science was the least important aspect of what the lse did up until probably the 1950s the lse was a commercial college most of the most of the graduates right up to the 1930s uh, went into teaching uh, into public administration uh, into banks um, uh, in the city um, into public uh, well, civil servants of course and also what had been important up to then were railway companies and all this kind of training and so you know, economics wasn't wasn't important as an undergraduate thing in the LSE and this is what I demonstrate in those parts of the books so the, that brings me to the, the other point is that what is really important in my book is a focus on teaching not theory what i'm looking at is the way in which economists or future economists are thought are to be trained what is thought to be the appropriate way of training these people how do we form them in such a way that they have presuppositions reflexes uh, a background an orientation to knowledge now marshall had a problem with this because uh, I, I've sort of thought more recently, he was the man who knew too much. Um, he knew so much that he found it really hard to, to put it all together. So in 1890, he published his Principles, Volume 1, um, and I show in my book how, in fact, the concept he had for Principles of Economics in, in the 1890s was based on a German model, of a, a big compendium of, of work which included economic policy, multi-volume work. Um, and, the pro and, and the parts that he, he wanted to bring in did eventually get published in the 1920s as money, credit and commerce and industry and trade. But by then it was all very old material. And he never managed in, in the 30 odd years that he lived after 1890, he never managed to pull all this stuff together. So he was the sort of man who knew too much. And he had also thinking, listening to Ryan, he, had a, he did have a form of casuistical reasoning. He did actually think in terms of applying particular, particular ideas to particular issues and, and wasn't too worried about clashes. And this is what happened in the 1920s that this, this became increasingly criticized by a new kind of economic theorist who, who accused him of being consistent and, and, and so forth. And so we have a new kind of idea of economics developing. And the, the epitome of this is Lionel Robbins at the LSE, who was appointed professor in 1929. Now, the, the, by contrast to Marshall, Robbins actually didn't know very much, I'd say. He doesn't know very much practically, empirically, and he doesn't know very much in terms of, of theory. He, don't, he knows no mathematics at all, it seems. Um, he knows no statistics. Um, so all of the sorts of things that we associate with Marshall, he doesn't know. But he manages to turn this to his advantage because he is professor at the LSE. The LSE is at the center of London University, which is at the center of the imperial system of, of education, uh, where people are sitting University of London exams 
um, all around the world. Um, and the model of the social sciences, which is developed in the LSE, becomes the model in Britain. Um, so basically, he is at the center of this web. Uh, so that, that's, that's important. So he turns his lack of knowledge uh, of the economy into a, 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 an advantage. He also, importantly, has a real distaste for the teaching of commerce, which is where, what happens everywhere else. And also in, on a theoretical level, he manages to mobilize uh, obscure syntheses of Austrian work by Wixell and Wixsteed, Wixell's lectures, um, which, uh, which basically both bodies of work date back to the 1880s. So what, 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 um, what Robbins is presenting as a novelty in the 1930s actually comes from the 1880s in, in, in principle and the kinds of ideas he's got. Um, and so, he, but he manages to, to put all this together and that then becomes a template which forms the textbooks of economics. The first major textbooks come from the LSE uh, and the, most of the textbooks which were really influential right up until the 1960s and 70s in Britain uh, were formed on the model which date back to uh, Robin's lectures in the 1930s. And so that's roughly the story. That's why it's 1850 to 1950 framework. You can't go much beyond 1950 simply because of lack of, a lack of information. The, the, the archives are virtually non-existent and it's very hard to piece together. I started a, 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 an interview project with people who had formed departments and had been important in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and they, they just couldn't remember um, what what had happened and why things had happened and so forth and so it, it's very hard to go much beyond that to to modern but basically what I try to do is show how we came out of um, the 1940s into the 1950s but importantly the last point I'll make is that in Britain um, there was a failure to develop beyond undergraduate education and so uh, in the United States by the 1950s, certainly 1940s, with all the veterans programs and so forth in universities, graduate education was booming. Um, um, but it, so taught, taught graduate economics um, was, was booming in the United States. And, and in the, even in the 1930s, um, Samuelson sat in on a, a graduate class in, uh, in Chicago as an undergraduate. Um, and the, he, he probably was among about 30 odd students he reckoned and there were probably no more or well, well i'd be surprised if there are more than twice of that totally in that year in britain graduated in economics in, as undergraduates and so it's much bigger and so basically britain stuck at the level of undergraduate training um, there was no demand from employment for 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 public and private employment for for graduate work in 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 britain it was a liability having it's, as an economist, actually, it was a liability, even in the 1970s, 1980s, having a PhD, unless you were going to have an academic job. And there were no academic jobs in the 1970s, late 1970s, and 1980s, in economics, really, to speak of. So the America, that's, that, in a sense, is the basis for the story about how you get from the political economy, which, um, which uh, Ryan is talking about, to this... this uh, where we are now, in a sense, with an American-dominated, um, uh, American-dominated uh, economics. Great. So the the ground your book covers is really vast. 
um, you cover several countries over a time span of 100 years. How did you integrate comparisons between the different universities at the same time as tracing the historical development into the structure of the book? So how do you create a narrative and how do you think your broad approach adds to our understanding of the construction of economic science? Well, as, as I say, that's a very good question. Uh, and, and it's a problem that bothered me for, for decades, actually. Uh, so as the, pro the project started in 1989 with a grant. Um, and I also had a fellowship at Manchester in the early 1990s. But part of the problem, um, I, I, I was interested in this development of, of economics in Britain, partly as a, as a domestic uh, sort of home problem, um, that I'd done all this work in Germany in the 1980s. I could no longer carry on that because I couldn't, I just couldn't afford the time or the uh, home or the money. I didn't have the money to carry on on the German. So I, my bright idea was I'd carry on the same kind of work, but in Britain, where I would actually just do it on day trips and things and, and so forth. So that, that was, that was the part of the, the very trivial, you know, not, not trivial, but the sort of domestic uh, constraint, which meant that that was, where, that was the way I, I, I went on with it. But again, uh, in the 1990s, of course, the British university system was being restructured and I got increasingly irritated by the kind of arguments being put forward by um, government and, and educational administrators and so forth, because it seemed they knew virtually nothing about the way the university system had developed and, and why it was the way it was and what it was for and so forth. Um, and uh, this is always, this continues to be true. Um, but um, so I, I got very frustrated. I published some policy material and so forth. But um, um, I, I, I also engaged in a lot of interviews and gathering material, but became actually so disheartened um, by the sheer range of material I'd got. I'd done a lot of work on the United States, on France and on Germany in particular. Um, and so more or less put it aside. <clears throat> and it was only, um, I think in uh, about a few years ago that I, I took it up again and started putting it together. So to answer your question, um, the, what, the way it all came out in the end, I still didn't know quite how I could put it all together, but what I did eventually was to put right up front after the introduction, an account of the university system what, what I mean by the university system. And it outlines the German university system, which everything was built on from the, from the, the Germany, the, the center, center point of, of university culture in the world in the late, later 19th century. Um, the Americanization, the, the American adoption of that model, but also the transformation of it with a lot of money, lots and lots of money in the United States in the late 90s and early 1900s. Um, and how that was all regulated, how the American system developed as a, as a teaching system with, the, with just say lots of money, which also Rockefeller then, the, the Rockefeller Foundation then financed um, uh, uh, all of the LSE's building program between the first and second world war, and also financed half of the cost of the university library in Cambridge and the new Bodleian extension and lots of other things. So very material, uh, aid actually from 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 uh, from the United States in the 1930s even. So anyway, um, the the general idea 
um, was then I got the American system and then I looked at the L University of London. The University of London is absolutely central because as I said before, it's actually became the center of how university culture in Britain developed um, uh, be, by dint of the fact that a lot of the universities which, which we now have, or we, which the older universities, the so-called red bricks, were all um, co university colleges using University of London syllabi and examinations. And also a lot of institutions around the world in the Commonwealth, in the empire, um, were based on the federal structure on university and actually got started by sitting their exams and adopting their curricula and so forth. So London University is absolutely central to all of this. And the LSE sat at the center of, of this. And so the structure I developed, I've done an awful lot of work on Cambridge, um, and, but Cambridge is important not so far as the idea of, of Marshall as some kind of theoretical economist, but actually as creating a teaching system. I show in my, my, my book how it, the moral sciences tripos was regarded by, by Marshall as an unsuitable vehicle for the development of uh, economics because it was about reading books. Um, and by contrast, the mathematical tripos, which is about training classes of students in instruments of analysis, was the model he took and adopted for economics. Um, now, ironically, what I also uh, suggest or demonstrate is that uh, the Cambridge model of education as developed from the 1920s onwards, supervisions as we know them now, um, were an invention of the 1920s or so. Colleges weren't important in teaching um, in mathematics, for example, in the 19th, in the 19th century. Um, uh, so, so there's a kind of mix between the colleges and the university and then also um, the, the system that developed in Oxford and Cambridge was actually unsuitable to teach Marshallian type economics and wasn't the way in which Marshall himself taught. Um, and so I, I show that from looking at that sort of thing. And then I can show how it's London, uh, the, the commercial education goes around Britain Manchester was crucial to this, really. Uh, Manchester is quite central, so it's useful that I, I, I did a lot of work in Manchester. Um, and uh, then I can show how the London School of Economics developed out of that basic culture of commercial education with a bit of economics, um, it, that actually the London School of Economics develops strongly in the 1920s. And then there's a big effort by, by Robbins and some of his appointees um, in the 1930s to, for undergraduate education in economics uh, and to kind of displace the practical teaching of commerce, uh, which had existed up to then. And that, that gave me the structure of the book. I mean, but, it, but there's actually this even, even I think it was only a year ago, a year or so ago that the, the last what, what I'd thought of was going to be the last two chapters of the book became the third chapter uh, because I realized I just couldn't, I just couldn't go on and on about journals mm. and societies and whatever. So, so it, it took a long time to, to reach the structure it has got now. I have one last question for you. Um, and that, this is now me, the historian speaking. So one of your, one of your chapters is about the, what you call the unrealized prospects of historical economics. Um, could you could you say 
what do you mean by this? And also explain why, why the prospect has, yeah, remained unrealized. Well, it's an unrealized prospect. Um, I, I talk about Ashley and Toynbee mainly in that um, bit about Cunningham. It's an unrealized prospect because particularly with Ashley um, is that it, the, the historical economics was a critique which never, never created a form of education. Never, never, it could never, it was never turned into a teaching model unless you can transform um, but well, let's say also there's a point about routinization of knowledge here. Unless you can transform something into a way of teaching it, a system for teaching, which can be replicated, which where, where teachers can be trained in it and they can go away and train other people. So it doesn't, doesn't rest on great men, great theories and all this sort of stuff. Um, then um, that's what you need. And so the, the basic mistake in, in, in talking up the idea of, historical economics is an alternative and the, the, the chapter you refer to is a is a is in a two part is two chapters in that part which is paths not taken basically the first path not taken is Oxford why doesn't economics develop as a discipline in Britain in Oxford and there are kind of very strong institutional reasons for that which I, I go through there are lots of people come out of Oxford who are interested in economics but it never has developed a a way of teaching economics which corresponded to the way Marshall conceived it. Um, and it's ironic now that the PPE degree, which only, ha which is, which only has a, s a small part of, of, uh, of economics in it, um, um, is, is, the, is actually occupies a space which Marshall had envisaged for economics. And so this very much cut down and limited version of, uh, of economic training is what remains of the Marshallian project, but it happens in Oxford. Um, so that's that. And then let's say the historicization thing, the historical method is that, well, it's you know, people, Ashley and Cunningham were critical of Marshall, what they saw as Marshallian economics, but they had no alternative. They had nothing to offer. They had no students. They had no curricula. They had no examinations. They had no qualifications. So it's, it's, it ran into the sand. Thank you. Um, so taken together, your two books present a new story about the formation of economics as a science that challenges established views. Um, so if there was no straightforward transition from classical political economy to neoclassicism, then to us, what was there? Is there an alternative? <laughs> you want to go, Ryan? Sure. Um, well, I mean, normally the period that story is told the, the way you suggest, Lena, that there was one body of thought that proceeded in a certain way and then it was displaced. And so a favourite trope for telling the story has been the idea of a revolution, the so-called marginal revolution, where utility maximisation was independently discovered by multiple scientists around the same time in, in different countries. And this therefore makes us feel confident that it really is um, true because it's a multiple. And so that, that obviously, that story is premised on erecting two big unities of thought. And then you can play the game of, of talking about the transition dynamics. I think if you put the two books together, what you get instead is a story of a, a dispersed public knowledge centered around parliament 
and, and this strange British tradition of, of something like an independent mandarinate offering counsel to parliament or, or just being difficult. And then you have some Johnny come lately, such as Ricardo, who are outside the kind of um, chosen circles trying to, to, to change it. And so that kind of rumbles on deep into the 19th century because it's parliament and party politics that provide the centre of gravity for these debates. And, and that's why most political economists pick up their pens. It's, it's to try to change laws. And then, and then you get this, in a, in a sense, that the, the shift is not to do with knowledge or epistemology, but it's to do with the, the story that Keith tells, which is about institutions transforming this knowledge from a public council knowledge into something else. And so that means that you, you get council had been, in a sense, the lodestar is replaced by science. And so when you're doing science, you're not under the same pressure. You're not tethered to solving problems and giving practical advice, balancing security and justice concerns, weaving in party political shibboleths. All, all of that can go away and be replaced by tenured academics who, as we know all too well, are, are you know, in one sense disciplined by the office of academic, but, but that's no discipline at all. We can say all sorts of crazy things and that we don't, we don't lose our jobs. So then that creates the conditions for institutions to then provide the, the new centre of gravity for economics. And at the same time, because council has been displaced by science and, and what, and what uh, Marshall called toys, these, these kind of neat conceptual tricks, and innovation and, and theory stated in isolation of its application, that then provides a new motor for the development um, of the science. So in a sense, the, the story is one of forgetting this so-called paradigm shift and, and focusing on the shift from parliament as the key institution to universities, that really, in a sense, we're trying to, not on purpose, but it turns out that we're, we're trying to shift the track on which you tell the story, but Keith, you know, you, you should feel free to, to tell me what, what I got wrong. No, no, I mean, I agree. I'm, and actually I'll pick up on your, your brief reference to paradigm shift, because as, as the front cover of my book um, has a picture uh, on it, which alludes to uh, an exhibition I went to in 1971 um, uh, at Hayward Gallery. Um, uh, which which I saw Tatlin's Tower, which is being built on the front of the thing in 1920. Um, the point is that at that time I, I wrote a paper on Russian Revolution in art and Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. In 1971, I read Structure of Scientific Revolutions and was very impressed by it. But by the end of the year, I'd produced a, a, a long essay, which basically completely rejected it. And all of my work is based on this kind of being initially enthused by this idea of scientific revolutions and so forth, and normal science uh, and revolutions, and actually rejecting that completely, um, and basing from my graduate work, trying to find another means of developing uh, a way of accounting for the way uh, I, the sort of theories change or how ideas uh, are created, lost, change, whatever. Um, and so the, what um, 
as I, I've talked before about instead of we instead of normal science, which is Kuhn's idea, which is this kind of routinization, I talk about the routinization of knowledge in the sense that it isn't the best ideas that prevail, but those which are most easily repl replicable. And the point is the toys which uh, which uh, uh, Ryan's just referred to, what, what Marshall would refer to as toys. These are kind of tricks and kind of little frameworks and things which, which are relatively easily taught. That you, don't, you don't need brilliant teachers and you don't need brilliant students for the whole thing to replicate. And that's what um, a mass education system is about. It can't rest, it, you, you, it can't rest on brilliant teachers. It can't rest on brilliant students. It has to, to, to be effective on a mass scale. It has to be routinized. Um, and so that's the kind of that that what I'm what I'm taking from that is the way that the university is a way of transforming this kind of knowledge into routinized knowledge, but which at the same time, as, as Ryan's emphasized, represents itself as a science. And so that the, the main chapter on the LSE is called what I it's actually taken from the German for Wissenschaftlichung, um, mm. the scientization of knowledge so actually turning this and in fact say so don't, don't I'll sort of stop here but I mean the, what I the way I start that 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 chapter off I don't I don't actually um, look at uh, the 1932 book of Robbins to start with uh, um, nature and significance of economic science um, basically I I look at his inaugural address where he sells this idea of esoteric knowledge that economics is this esoteric knowledge which the ordinary people don't understand and you have to have a university training and a qualification to understand what it's all about and and it's a very crude um uh move on robin's part and especially as i do if you compare it to his predecessor alan young's inaugural address uh, who has still a very marshallian kind of idea of a, a, a kind of knowledge for the common good and so forth. Um, so this is the, the notion of esoteric knowledge, the science which you have to be trained in, and which, of course, as we as we know, and as graduate reports in uh, reports on graduate education in the United States uh, over the last twenty years or so, or so have shown, um, is simply um, uh, where you you have the elaboration of of ideas and techniques. Um, really for the sake of it, which then uh, the graduates within six months of their graduating, uh, finishing their graduate training, will have mostly forgotten, will, would not be able to do. Um, so this is, this is a kind of process. But it creates this esoteric knowledge, which uh, is specialized knowledge um, for the sake of specialism. I have, I think, one last question, and um, this is about, so where do we go from here? Um, so what are your ideas for further research? Um, maybe, Ryan, you want to start, and then you can hand over to Keith. Um, what I think is, is worth pursuing is the infrastructure that replaced the old infrastructure that made possible the forms of argument and thinking um, that we find in Malthus and Ricardo and their contemporaries. So if what made their thinking possible was this intense culture of ethical self-government, of internalising the ethos 
of the councillor um, of accepting that burden, which then obviously mandates casuistry as a form of reasoning because economists can't be one-trick ponies who can do a proof of comparative advantage but then have nothing to say about security. It was this demanding um, style of argument that they were expected to, to produce. What does that get replaced with and, and what enables that replacement? So just to take the, perhaps the most striking example, enthusiasm used to be the worst thing you could be called. That was a maximal indictment of your reasoning process. It was akin to being called um, mad, of having lost control of your faculties, of that privileged ability to use abstract reason and combine it with practical judgment, aesthetic sense, all, all of those skills that Adam Smith and, and others took very seriously. And the synonyms for enthusiasm included system lover or, or love of theory. And so obviously today it's okay to be a pure theorist, that that's, if you called someone a, a theory lover, you, you're not impugning their ethical person the way you would have been in, in 1820. And enthusiasm now is a term of, of commendation. It's not only lost its negative charge, it's completely reversed and become something that we look for in our students. Um, so, so those sorts of transformations, um, I, I just don't think we know very much about them. And, and they seem to be crucial to understanding where we are now and, 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 and how we're different from what went before. Keith, do you also want to lay out your ideas for, for further research? Well, I mean, at a personal level, um, I had had an idea a few years ago of carrying on to work on, on the, the background to welfare economics. And I did quite a lot of work on Pigou and then on Sidgwick, um, but then decided that, you know, nobody really seemed to be very interested in this. And it was, it was like pushing water uphill. At my age, I didn't want to do that. And so what I have done um, is, is to go back to the, the period of really well, where, the, I, where I started with my graduate work in the 17th and 18th centuries. And what strikes me very more and more forcibly as I now work into that material, into the, the, the economic and, so, and social and history and political and economic thought of the 17th one and early modern time is how much better the well obviously the 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 historical literature is much better now the detailed historical literature there's real problems with the way in which the economic history of the of the period or early modern economic history is written which i won't go into but um but there is an awful lot of very very solid historical literature now uh, which really means you can develop uh, ideas in a way you could not have done 20 or 30 years ago and so I find that personally much more rewarding to go back to that period I mean and, and this also echoes a, uh, a sentiment of my, my friend Isvan Hond who uh, basically worked on the 18th century because and, and showed relatively interest in the, in the 19th century because he regarded 19th century historiography is more or less a graveyard that, that actually that there was very little work and it struck me quite forcibly recently working on um, uh, basically the corn laws on on basically the data I mean I'm working with an econometrician Gauthier Lenon on uh, on the, the basic uh, 
the basic uh, markets and 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 price structures and regulations underlying the Corn Laws um, in the late 18th, early 19th century. It struck me quite forcibly that we know much more about this than we know, for example, about imperial preference and, and the early 20th, early 20th century. I mean, there's virtually nothing, as far as I can work out, modern, very solid modern work, or not very much, um, on the late on the 1890s, early 1900s. So in in my in constructing economic science, I do I do talk about um, the tariff reform debate and so forth. But it seems there is very little um, um, modern literature which takes this seriously, and because it's a problem which is which is still with us. I mean the the whole problem about preferential trade and so forth. And just to finish, I mean the, the I mean the the, the justification for going backwards in order to go forwards, is that uh, a text which I, I, I came back to last year uh, teaching was Jacob Viner's uh, uh, 1948 essay on power and plenty. And I think that still can teach us an awful lot. I mean, if you look at the modern world and economics today, it's still all about power and plenty um, and the kind of those kinds of arguments. And that by looking at, as, as Ryan has also done at, at 17th century, uh, de debates and arguments and, and what development of a different of rivalries and so forth, which is what Istvan did as well. Um, we can, I think, learn more about our modern world than by trying to keep up with the, the wealth of, of half-digested news and, and, and commentary and so forth that surrounds us today. Thank you both very much um, for this interview and I look forward to reading your books. Thank you, Lena. Thank, thanks very much indeed.